Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know the drill. Today, we're going to be uh, continuing our theme of scary movies. We're going to talk about Ari Aster's 2018 film, Hereditary. Um, now, there's a couple spoiler alerts. If you have not seen Hereditary, stop listening right now because we're going to give away tons of plot things. And there's also a, a language warning for this one because a couple quotations are going to have some bad words. So if you have to turn off the podcast, go ahead and do it now. But we're going to start right away. Each of us have seen this twice. Mike saw it yesterday. I saw it this morning. Um, we'll, we always talk in part one about our overall impressions. And I do remember that I did not see it in the movies, but Mike did. And I remember you weren't that impressed by it. But um, what was your take on it now seeing it again? My, my take is still the same. So here are, here are two things. I love Tony Collette. I love Gabriel Byrne. I, these, these two kids, bo both kids, I don't actually know the, the actors' names. They keep, I keep trying to figure them out sure. and they keep in my mind. Everybody in this movie gives a, a brilliant performance. And so as a vehicle for, for, for performance, I think it's great. Um, I will also say another thing, which is I, one th interesting thing about Ari Aster, I think as a director, is there's easy things that some directors do well. I think that there's a lot of problems with the script um, that we can get into later, but there's a lot of technical nuance that only practice directors do and Ari Aster does all of them. Um, so, you know, I'll get in, more into that in my scenes, but I think that if we sat down for a screenwriting class and you were like, here's how to handle exposition, you should watch the opening scenes of Hereditary because they'll give you everything you need you don't feel like things are being uh, exposited. And meanwhile, there's you're being set up uh, for the ending all over the place. So I think both technically, if we took um, stills from the from the films on this podcast and we we watched them, uh, Ari Aster would be in like our top 10% of, of directors for, for stills. A lot of the photography is really beautiful. His expositional devices are great. I think the holes come at the at the end or the issues come at the end. So as a vehicle for good directing, you know, it, it's it's really great and good performances. Absolutely. I mean, how good is Tony Collette in this movie? I mean, I th I I think it is one of the great movie performances ever. I mean, that scene where she's in the grief circle and and, she, and like when Joan is trying to give her the phone number in the car and <laughs> which is telling well, I don't want to talk about the grief circle yet. Okay, okay. Exactly I'm just right. talking about great examples of acting, right? But when, like, when she's telling Gabriel Byrne, like, you are the love of my life, I love you so much, and your your stomach is churning, you know, and I find those scenes more churn-worthy than, like, the devil scenes, but I think she's unbelievable. It's so funny what you said about Ari Aster, because one of my one of my thoughts was, this guy can make a movie. And I don't know if you saw, if you saw Midsummer. did you see the Midsummer? No, not yet. It's not as good as this one, but... Um, this guy can write, he can move a camera. I thought to myself, it's like this guy was born knowing what to do with a camera. And I'm going, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think this guy is so young. I think there's a good chance this guy is going to become like the next Stanley Kubrick because this is the closest I feel to it, like those long shots. And you know what it reminded me about Kubrick was the sense of foreboding. So the first scene you get the miniatures and it goes, it zeroes in and then you're in Peter's room, right? The sense, and that's obviously a big conceit. Really by the way. What? That's an absolutely brilliant match. Yeah, cut. brilliant. So that's a big conceit in the movies that they're being manipulated. My mother was very secretive. The whole movie is they're being manipulated from a, by a dead woman. But every when I thought about Kubrick as a whole, all of his films, I mean, including 2001, you feel like you're being manipulated by some like kind of like strange force. And whether that force is an alien or the ghost in The Shining or um, you know the spirit of the Droogs or Stanley Kubrick himself, you always get this like bad sense. Of, and I just think it, it reminded me very much like that. So 
Um, and I also want to say in the beginning that uh, I don't want to hear from you. I want to stop our fight right now about how people believe in believable ways, how people act in believable ways. Like, I think that this movie works because the characters behave exactly as they would, exactly as they would to a fault. I mean, her crying, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, more, more honest reactions to incomprehensible events. No, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, one of the reasons that you don't, I think both times that I saw this movie, um, when Peter comes home after his yeah. sister been decapitated in a car, when you see Peter then laying in bed, my general sense from directing, like just as a strategic idea, is that time has elapsed and now you're going to see Peter full of grief. My, for, my initial impression is not that it's the next morning because it's very difficult to do those scenes. Those, nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to see it. They're very hard to deal with technically. Yeah. And you need the kind of actress or actor who can handle that load for the rest of the movie. It happens 40 minutes in. It's a, it's a long one. I think it's like two hours plus tax. Yeah. yeah. So that leaves a lot of time to deal with a dead child, which is, ne there's, there's, no, there's no way to deal with a dead child. Yes. Yeah. So and you her, hear her reaction to fighting the body. The hearing of the reaction yes, to fighting the body than the scene. Is, oh, is, so, is so wonderful. And I, I defy you to just go find an actress who can sit rock on the floor and say, it just hurts so much. I just need to die. I just want to die and have it be believable. Well, that's one of my moments. So why don't we save that for part two? Okay, excellent. We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite scenes or our key scenes. Uh, Dan, you just mentioned that you had one, so why don't you start us off? Sorry, I had to do that. No, my, my key scene was the scene where she is on her knees and saying, um, I just want to die. I just want to die. And Gabriel Byrne is rubbing her back because that reminded me of what the great 18th century author, stay with me, Samuel Johnson said about the end of Othello. He said for the last scene of Othello, when Othello strangles his wife and you know that he's strangling her for a lie, um, for something for which he's completely innocent. Johnson's quote was, I am glad I have finished my revision of this dreadful scene, it is not to be endured. And that's what I felt about watching, watching that scene, was that you want to look away because it's so personal and it's so hard to watch in a way that like, whatever, naked Satanists, yeah, I could, I, they're fine, right? Um, and like, you know, a, a spooky thing levitating in a treehouse. But that scene is unbelievable. And it occurred to me the second time when I already knew the ending, so I didn't have to worry about that stuff, was like that scene and the dinner scene when she's screaming at him, right? She's like, all I get is that fucking face on your face, right? Um, you forget that it's a horror movie. And it almost makes me want to tell this guy, listen, stop making horror movies. Just just, just make, because you're good enough to do all this stuff. And I think the movie works because it's, it's, it's a movie about grief, right? It starts out with a funeral, but there's no sadness. She's like, should I be sadder, right? And, and uh, Gabriel Byrne says to Peter, are you sad? And he's kind of like, oh, I don't know. Like, like no one will cry. But then you get the real grief with Charlie. Like the movie sets you up for the real grief. And then it brings up all this terrible stuff, like, you know, when the dream, like, I never wanted to be your mother. 
I tried to have a miscarriage. So I think that I, I think that you know the the movie is a profound meditation on what grief does to a family and tears it apart with this with this like satanic you know cult stuff thrown in, and that's why I love that th those moments so much because I think they're so well done. Well, that and I think that Gabriel Byrne gives a very understated performance, totally. which is a beautiful counterweight to Tony Collette. So, so you can imagine, you know, she's all fireworks and everything she's in. If yeah. you remember her from The Sixth Sense, right? Yeah. Uh, she is the non-supernatural element, except she's she's everything about home that you that you ever needed it to be. She's the counter Bruce Willis, who's like cold and dead and in an empty house. She's a, she's a full house herself. <laughs> all, these, all these fireworks. And he is a, a perfect counterbalance to set her up, right? He's only concerned about his children. He's concerned about yeah. his wife. He's all he's hurt and damaged. He goes in her room and cries, and but yeah. we don't see his crying, right? We, there's no there's no crying. Gabriel Burns, you just know he's going to his daughter's room, and he knows that she was weird and he didn't quite understand her, and he wasn't able to connect with her. Like the closest he ever gets to saying, um, "I love about I love you and I hope you're safe," is like, "Hey, is there nuts in that chocolate bar?" Yeah. He's crying on her, you know, he's crying on her bed, and so he also gives a very believable performance. It's very easy to forget that he's acting. Yeah, and right, that's that he, why when he cries at the traffic light, when he's bringing Peter home from school and he starts crying at the traffic light, it's so moving because he's been holding it in the whole movie. What's your now, moment? I'll tell you about my moment, which is one of the reasons that I enjoyed rewatching this film is we on this podcast, I don't, I don't feel like we get uh, enough time to talk about specific scenes where somebody's moving the camera brilliantly. This is a young director moving the, the camera brilliantly. So this is the grief circle scene. Her Annie's, Annie's mother's dead. She doesn't know how to feel about it. She feels sad and relieved and she's glad that her mom's dead and she doesn't know why. So she goes to the grief circle. Now we see the we see the circle, which is almost like it's a ritual circle, right? It's a it's <laughs> a very yeah, true. Secular ritual circle. Everybody's gonna gather and talk and say things out loud, and then everybody's gonna feel better. And when Annie starts talking, we're in a tight tight advance towards her. We're getting closer and closer to her face and her brain until she's tight in shot. It's a close-up in focus of her face. And then she says, but I always just feel like I'm being blamed for things. And she starts to get defensive by herself. And once she starts to get defensive by herself, we pan back and back and back and back until the counselor is out of focus, but in the shot. And so it's just a, it's just a brilliant little technical nuance of saying, I'm going to move in on Annie's actual emotions as she's giving them. And at the second that she starts acting as Annie and putting on the face that she thinks the world wants to see, we're already withdrawing from her because she's already pushing us away. And it's such a brilliant study with the camera of what's going on inside the character. You don't expect a first time director to be able to pull those kinds of things off, but those are the shots and the little nuances that you get in this movie. Yeah, and that's of course why we love them because we've said this about other scenes and other movies we love, like the bank robbery and Heat. Like they could have given Mike and Dan all the money in the world and said, "You could have the best cameras you want. How are you going to film this?" We wouldn't have thought of that. And we and we've seen a billion movies, right? But this guy was born, and I thought the same thing with the grief circle. And I'm like, look how subtle this is, of how and the movie does that to you so many times in so many scenes in so many ways that you could almost pick any any scene at random. And, and just point to what he's doing there with the camera because it does, you know, there's no jump scares. And I mean, well, when she runs after him at the end, that's a pretty good jump scare. I mean, there's a few of them, but, but, but the camera, that's what I meant about Kubrick. Like it, it works on your gut in a way that I think um, he wanted eyes wide shut to work, which doesn't work, I think, in your gut as well as this does. Well, I mean, he had, he had kind of cracked by then and he, you know, <laughs> 
no offense to Nicole Kidman, but that movie would have been better with Tony Collette in it too. So yeah, fair enough. All right, I'll see you in part three. Okay. Hi, welcome back. So in part three, we always talk about the ending or the last scene or our, our lasting impressions of the movie. So Mike, what do you think? Um, again, did your impression of this change since you first saw it till now or what's your take? It's, this is uh, nine tenths of not just a good movie. This is nine tenths of a great movie uh, that I feel really cracks. And, and here's why. I don't, did you ever see Saw? The original no. Saw? No. Okay. There's a, the, the central conceit is somebody has to fall in and, you know, and of course the camera looks away. Why? Because whatever you're going to do in your head is far more terrible than okay. showing some, you know, some gory mess. Sure. And so this movie is a movie about dread and what dread has, dread has to do with the unseen. And you should, you should just know that. And there's a literal payoff scene that the guy, he, he just can't help himself, right? The minute that, the minute that Peter gets up off the, the grass and he clicks his tongue yeah and you hear the weird music you know there's something going on in the treehouse but everything that's going to go on the treehouse is already on the pages of the book when annie's frantically looking through the book uh-huh that's title credits right there and we're and we're done i think that the whole the whole final scene is just a, is just a drag through of a really annoying payoff um and and you should it really lets go of a lot. Of, it diffuses the attention of the movie right before the movie ends. And that's my last final thing of the movie before I exit back into real life. And I remember being really disappointed by that. And if the, you can say, well, maybe tension's not the point of the movie, but of course it is. It's in every shot, it's in every angle, it's in every expository device, it's in, in, it's in every performance. And the release of the tension is is just like counter strategic to the movie. It doesn't it doesn't belong there. I think you should have written just a big red cross pencil through like the last I want to call it, maybe maybe it's just five minutes through the release of the tension because the the mystery of what's going to go on in there the the payoff is not as good as the mystery. Well, the payoff. I'll tell you this. First of all, that's I, I don't agree with you on that one at all. I don't think the the payoff is seldom as good as the mystery. I've read maybe forty Agatha Christie books, and maybe four of them are mind blowing, and the rest of them are like, no, it really was the the guy in the uh, tax assessor's office, right? I mean, they're they're all not the murder of Roger Ackroyd. They're all not the ABC murders, right? Even Sherlock Holmes, right? So I think that the 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 payoff not being as good as the mystery that happens all the time in movies and books. So I understand the idea of that. I don't think it happens here though. If if he clicks when he falls in the bushes you still wouldn't know enough you have to at least tell the audience what was going on because you saw like a flash from one page of a book like you wouldn't understand at the end like when you, like you have to have some kind of release where he's standing there and then plus you get the, the the both sides now which is hilarious but um you still have to have some kind of of, of culmination i think if it ended there it would be too much of the audience going like what what's going on like like and even if you're a really good audience member you have to have joan in there explaining what's going on when he sees the naked guy standing in the doorway, when, when, when he first gets up and you're like, what, and what, what is going on? I think the movie works that way. And, you know, it's funny because you said what you could have done without, I could have done without seeing like Charlie's head covered with ants. Like I didn't need to see that. I think the dread of that, the accident was filmed, you know, fine. I didn't need to see like that particular shot or with Tony Collette sawing off her own head. But 
I still think you have to have you have to tie up that like when 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 she goes and looks and trying to get in Joan's house and Peter's pictures on the table and then her mother's upstairs like what is her mother doing upstairs and then why is it replaced with his picture and even Peter doesn't understand you don't understand yet either I don't think there's a mo there's a moment when he's walking towards the treehouse and something happens for the first time in the film which is that the director's level of information matches my level of information and that's when I feel the natural the natural end of the movie is because I think I think that the I think that the momentum in the movie is started by uh, Ari Aster has all this information that I don't have yeah. and he gets to pick and choose when I have it and pick and choose when I have it and still I mean the, you already said it in this podcast so the the great mind fuck of this movie yeah. is when she's she's willing to sacrifice herself to stop it she's right. going to sacrifice herself to stop it just throw the book in the fire and Gabriel Byrne is yeah. is burned down instead and you can see that that she's dead in that instant. You know, whatever right. she wanted to happen is happens. She's she's gone. Because one of the things that binds this movie together, um, to counter what you said before, is that not everybody not everybody is manipulated by outside forces. You very much have to opt in to what's happening. And the movie makes that explicit when they're talking about um, Heracles, the the play. Yes, I have. So is it is it more tragic or less tragic that Heracles is just a is just a pawn? But he's he's not a pawn, you know. That his his fate is his fate is sealed, but it's sealed from a moment of opting in, and that's when the whole family gathers to do the thing with Charlie. If if everybody says yeah, but she was manipulated. Tony Collette is manipulated. She doesn't have a chance. She's manipulated in her. She's very vulnerable, and that's why Joan does the whole fake thing about her grandson because she knows she can manipulate her because, because they've got to get her to give up Peter. Sure, but she can, she can walk away. Peter can walk away. Her husband can walk she away. She can't walk away. Can she walk. can't walk away. She's, she's an emotional train wreck. And then she meets a woman who says, you can, still, you can actually talk to your dead child. She can't walk away from that. Sure, but except that the film makes it explicit that she can walk away because she's not, she's not doing anything. She takes the materials with her and her hands are shaking and she goes home. And she does nothing until she wakes up in the middle of the night. And yeah, so because... I, under, I understand what you're saying, but what you're saying is valid if she rushes home and the first thing that she wants to do is like, oh, I got to do, I got to do this. But there's a, there's indecision. It's, yeah, but the, the reason she doesn't do it is because I think she has, she has a totally believable reaction to the seance, which is again, something you never see in a movie. If I ever went to a seance and I saw something actually move a glass or write on a chalkboard, I'd, again, I would be out of the next, I'd be out of this zip code or this time zone. So I think she's so upset by, that's why she's crying going, stop it, stop it, stop it. So she has, she has to process it. And then she gets so desperate that she's like, I want to talk to Charlie. I agree with you, but there's a difference between highly motivated and helpless. She is highly motivated to participate in the seance, it, to, to throw the seance at her own house. She's not helpless to not do so. And so that like all the fates of the characters that are involved, they have all opted in at a certain moment without realizing that, it, that it's- Well, yeah, I mean, she doesn't know she's opted in either. So maybe we're talking about the same thing. She doesn't know she's opted in. That's the joke of the title is that her mother has manipulated them all from beyond the grave to make sure that, that Paymon finds his male host. Yeah, I mean, so- and and the the grandma you know ending up being the ma the master manipulator without being in the movie uh -huh. um, is a you know is a fun is a fun yeah. thing but like you said with the Agatha Christie it's like yeah the grandma's up the the grandma's up to something it's like yeah she definitely is well let 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 me let me end by I'd, I'd love to I'd love to read part of a poem to our audience right sure. a poem by Philip Larkin now maybe you know what Philip Larkin poem I have in mind right I do. 
You do? do. You do? Yeah. It's the it's the first. It's, it. What? Do you want me to say it? Uh, sure. Yeah, go ahead. You say the first two lines. I'll say the next two lines. Go ahead. Fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. So that certainly seems to be the theme of Hereditary. Whether or not, like the whether or not you like the last scene is. <laughs> as much as I do or as Mike doesn't. Um, we hope if you saw it once, you'll give it another look. And we also hope that you'll follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to try to stick with the scary movies. So if you have any, put them on Twitter at 15MINFilm. Thanks, everybody.